Uh, this morning we are going to begin our study in asking some of the difficult questions concerning faith, uh, God, and the Bible. Uh, and uh, before we begin this series, I'm going to urge every one of us to put away any preconceived notions or biases uh, that you or I may have already formed that would affect our decision concerning these difficult questions of faith, the Bible, and God. One of the things I got to enjoy when I was on jury duty, I'll put enjoy loosely, uh, was that it's one of the questions the judge does with the jury pool is that, will you be able to set aside all your preconceived notions and prior judgments and biases to listen to the evidence carefully and weigh it on your own and come to a fair decision regardless of your background and biases? That's just basically how it goes. If you can't do that, out you go. You have to be able to do that. And I think that's a fair treatment of anything that we do. We need to be able to weigh the evidence concerning the things that, that about God, about faith, about the Bible, and say, all right, let me give, a, give it a fair shake. And uh, there might be some of us who believe in God regardless of the evidence. I don't want you to do that. Set aside those preconceived notions and biases and just let the evidence speak for itself. You may have a, a, a bias or notion that there's no way that God exists. Do me a favor and set that aside as well. And just consider the evidence and consider the things that we're going to talk about this very morning. I think the Apostle Paul set a good precedent when he went into Athens as he tried to explain to them who the true and living God really was after being outraged by all the idolatry that he saw there. He did not argue the true and living God by going to the law of Moses and explaining to them how clearly the law of Moses teaches that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and they should put away all their other idols. Rather, he understood that you can't go to the law of Moses when you're dealing with people who do not accept the scriptures as the very word of God. And that's what we're going to have to do this morning as we ask the question about why should we believe that there is a God? It is not profitable for us to go to the unbeliever or the skeptic and say, well, because the Bible says so. And they don't accept the Bible as the word of God. And so that doesn't mean anything to them. We have to be able to explain and believe and show that there is a God without using the scriptures based upon what we see in in our world today. And so that's what we're going to do this very morning, just as Paul was able to do uh, with the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. I want us to consider, when we talk about really God or not God, when we talk about how things came together, that there are really only two alternatives that there is to accept when we are talking about how everything came about. We can either believe that God put it all here, that he created it out of nothing and put all things into existence, or we can believe that everything evolved out of nothing and brought everything into existence. There's not a, a viable third alternative. We either must accept all the tenets and all that comes with evolution and say that is how it all came about and go along with all of its difficulties and with all of its strengths, Or we have to go along with God and accept all of its difficulties and all of its strengths. There's no other place to stand. There's no other alternative uh, that stands before us with science or with the Bible to say, well, I I think evolution's got a problem. I think God's a problem. I'll, I'll, I'll rest here. And unfortunately, I think that's where a lot of people do rest, is that they have trouble believing in God, but aren't thrilled with the conclusions of evolution 
And so they stand kind of in an abyss and go, well, I don't like either, and so I just kind of won't ask the question in the first place. But this is an important question. Should we believe in God? Why should we or why shouldn't we? And if we shouldn't believe in God, then it's time when we get to 1130 to pack up, sell the building, and let's all stay home and we'll uh, relax this afternoon. Uh, it, it's an important question if God exists or if he does not exist. Before we get into considering if God exists, I want us just to quickly consider some of the tenets of evolution. And this is by no means uh, thorough, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this, but just to present some of the things that must be accepted if we are going to believe that evolution is the process through which everything came into existence, then we have to accept these tenets. One is that nothing produced everything. At some point there was nothing, and somehow it all came together. And so uh, typically scientists will tell us that uh, there was nothing, but at some point nitrogen and hydrogen Uh, appeared in the universe, energy was applied to that hydrogen and to that nitrogen, uh, and there was an explosion. That explosion then produced more complex molecules. And we went from seeing simple elements in the universe to complex molecules which began to evolve into life itself. And so things went from non-life, from just simple elements and materials, to full-functioning human beings that we have today. And one of the things I want to just quickly just point out as we go through this is that does violate a natural law of the universe, and that's not often revealed. Uh, back in 1859, it was proven that life cannot come from non-life. That's a law that's called the law of biogenesis. Uh, and a number of scientists went about trying to show that, and so now that's even called a law within science. And so what we would have to argue is that Nature violated its own laws. In its process of evolving all on its own, it had to violate its own very laws of the universe to be able to bring life into existence. With that life, then we see randomness, just random molecules for coming together and becoming fine-tuned, becoming more complex as chaos turns into information. Molecules become something usable. And we see animals and plants and all these things begin to form together. And we would see gases turn into planets. And so we would have to accept the argument that things went from a very chaotic state to a very controlled state, a state where we see an awful lot of purpose and we see an awful lot of information from randomness to fine-tuning and perfection around us, which does violate another law, which is important to recognize. And evolutionists understand this. It violates the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics says everything goes from a state of order to disorder. Look at your bedroom. Everything goes from a state of order to disorder. Look at your car. Look at your body. It's the law of the universe. Everything gets worse. It's just standard. And so that's understood. Everything is going to a greater state of chaos, a greater state of disorder. And so, again, the argument would have to be presented that nature violated its own law. In the process of evolution, it did not keep to its own law of going to a state of order to disorder. It actually began in disorder, gases and energy, and then move to a state of order and is growing more complex as we have it today. Unconsciousness then produced consciousness. Uh, we went from nothing and gases to now we have intellect, understanding, a, a consciousness, an awareness, subconscious, things like that, going from non-reason to reason. Uh, things didn't have a purpose before, but now suddenly we look at all the things that we have and we begin to seek for a purpose in life. The point I just want to simply make 
is that evolution's not a no-brainer. There are fundamental difficulties with that view, and that cannot be ignored, and are readily accepted by scientists. They understand that there is, even within evolution, a breaking of the laws that are set in the universe itself. A realization that evolution violates the law of biogenesis, it violates second law of thermodynamics, it violates a number of the laws of the universe, but this is the understanding that they've come to and accept them. And I just want you to realize that with even that, that does require uh, an amount of faith. It also, one of the great arguments against God that, that's typically brought forward is that to believe in God demands a belief in miracles. That God was able to create all this stuff, suspending natural law, which really that's all a miracle is, is doing something beyond natural law. You're breaking the natural laws of the universe. And I just hope to show you that evolution requires miracles also. Uh, since nature apparently broke its own laws as we have life coming from non-life and we have order coming from disorder. So it's not just as simple as, well, it's an obvious de facto choice. Within reason and intellect, there are tremendous difficulties that stand with the view of evolution. Now let's talk about some arguments for God. Why should we then look around and believe that there is a God? And the first argument is, is very simplistic. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple and uh, nothing to uh, get real overwhelmed about, but I think it's a, it's a logical start. It's just simply an argument of cause and effect. And, and this is the way the uh, syllogism is presented, if you know logic, which is a, a fun way to make an argument. The first premise is that whatever begins to exist has a cause. That tenet was argued for uh, against for a while, but that's been pretty well accepted, is that uh, everything comes about by a purpose. I'll give you an illustration in, in, in just a moment. The universe, of course, has a beginning, which that uh, was also debatable, but now that's been also put to rest, that there was a beginning to the universe, and therefore the universe has a cause. Uh, this simple syllogism of two premises, that everything that begins to exist has, has a cause, the universe had a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. And the, the point is just simply things don't come out of thin air. You... You uh, see a magician pull a rabbit out of the hat. None of us sit back and watch that and go, wow, how did he get all those molecules to quickly form together so that magically out of thin air there was actually a rabbit? All of us know there was a cause. We want to know, how did he do that? It's not a matter of sitting back and going, well, I'm sure that he's got some magical molecule stew going on in the hat. We, we know there's some sort of sleight of hand. Some, something is going on when, when uh, the magician stands on the stage and at one minute is standing by himself on the stage and the curtain rises, three seconds later it drops, and he's riding around on a motorcycle. We don't think that the motorcycle just spontaneously came into existence. We know somehow, someway, there must be a trap door. There, there must be something falling out of the sky. It came from somewhere. That's all this premise is stating is that things come from somewhere. There's something to it. When things appear, we don't go, that oh, just came out of random thin air. We know somebody put it there. Some sort of cause was behind it. And that's just a simple argument for the universe. The atheists regularly will argue that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. That it's all just chance. It all just kind of happened. There's not a real purpose. It all just kind of came together. And if you think about that long enough, I, I hope you will consider that, that intellectually that seems absurd. It, it's very difficult to accept a concept that 
It all just came about for no good reason. You are here for no reason whatsoever. This planet is here for no reason whatsoever. The perfect balance of this earth, of trees with carbon dioxide and us with oxygen, that's all here for no good reason. And space and the universe and all that is found in it has no good reason except that nitrogen and hydrogen and energy were randomly applied and voila, it all came about. That leaves us with a void. We just simply don't like that intellectually. It's hard to think that we just are kind of here with no purpose, value, reason, meaning, anything. Isn't there something to life? And if not philosophers for thousands and thousands of years ask the question that everybody asks, what is the meaning of life? It's a silly question if evolution be true, because there is no meaning. It's all random chance, it's all time, luck, and it just all happened to come together. And so I think one of the first arguments we can put together is intuitively we understand that everything has a cause and effect, that everything comes from something. We, we understand these things to, to exist in our natural laws around the universe, and that's no different when we look then at the universe itself, that somehow it had a beginning and it came from someone. Let's talk about physics. Let me tell you. I took chemistry in high school. And after taking chemistry, I knew I didn't want to take physics. <laughs> Went through the whole year of chemistry, and the, I remember the physics teacher coming in and saying, all right, now who wants to volunteer and take you as an elective physics class? And I, I went, the, <laughs> no way, barely squeezed through a chemistry, not interested in all that. So the information that I'm presenting to you is me relying on scholars, not my great understanding into all the details of physics and all that stuff. If you want more information about these statements, you can Google them and you will find gobs of intricate, intricate, mind-numbing information in physics about how all this works, and I, I welcome you to do that. Uh, the scientists tell us that there are more than 30 physical or cosmological parameters that are required, that require precise calibration in order to produce a universe that can sustain life. Uh, that's just an important foundation, is that that's why we haven't found life anywhere else. That's why when we run to Mars and Venus and we start trying to shoot things up to Jupiter, you're not finding life there because it's not that easy. There's at least more than 30 different cosmological and physical parameters that have to exist to begin to even contemplate the possibility of there being a universe that can sustain life. And what I want us to, to consider as we go through this is I'm just going to show you some of the odds of the variety of these parameters of, of what it would have taken for the odds of it to happen randomly. I'll show you what I mean. Let's talk about gravity. Uh, we're told by scientists that there's nearly an infinitesimal number of different degrees of what gravity could be exerting upon the Earth at, at this time. And, and that would make sense. And the scientists tell us if we change the gravity, even by 1%, one way or the other, it would kill life instantly. It is a very fine spot on the, the, the variable scale of all the possibilities of what gravity could be is one small little spot there of what exactly will work for there to be life existing. And then that number is, uh, the odds would be 1 over 10 to the 52. And uh, to give you a reminder back to, I think, algebra, uh, that means 1 with 52 zeros behind it. That's the number. That's, that's I think, 100 million, trillion, 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 
trillion, I think there's six trillions. That one in 100 million, six trillion, so 52 zeros. That's the odds of what it would take to hit it randomly. If we're just to, you know, kind of flip the flip flip a dart out there or whatever and say, all right, of all these possibilities of gravity, that's the chance of it hitting just exactly right. It's pretty tough odds. The distance from the sun. Obviously, we've always been told if we were a little bit closer to the sun, we'd burn up. Nobody's going to live on Mercury, right? If we were a little bit further from the sun, it would be too cold. We wouldn't be able to, to have life. Well, I thought, well, this would be interesting. Let's just consider, if we considered all of space, we would come to an infinite number, right? What are the possibilities of where Earth would land? land? And all the possibilities of the universe, well, it's infinite. We haven't found the end of space to be able to, to bring about a calculation. We just do one in infinity. So to bring about a calculation, let's just use our own universe and the Pluto is 3,660 million miles from the sun. So we can just say the Earth would, could have ended up random chance between right next to the sun and all the way out 3,660 3, million miles away so that we just do that. There's a 1 in 3,660 uh, 3, million chance of landing right here in this spot where it's just perfect for life to exist. A little bit further away, too cold. A little bit too close to the sun, too hot. I want you to see as we're you're beginning to multiply the odds of all of this happening. So take your gravity odds and multiply that by the odds that the earth lands just here in this right spot. How about the tilt of the earth? We've learned you tilt it a little bit more, a little bit less. Life could not be sustained here either. So you take, we could be, instead of being real fine, how about we just do 360 degrees for us simple-minded people, one out of 365 shot of getting that tilt. They're just exactly right. Okay, so we multiply out on there. This, I tried to figure out what the cosmological constant was. Go Google that. <laughs> wow, okay, that's really deep. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave it at that. But one of the scientists argued that if you combine the odds of the cosmological constant that the Earth has now with the odds of the force of gravity together, the odds of that being what it is right now randomly is 1 by, and then it would be a 1 with 77 zeros after it. Yeah, I'd like you to go home and write down 77 zeros just to see that, those odds. It'll make the lottery look like a good chance of, uh, of you winning. Uh, those are ridiculous odds. A 1 in... One ten to the seventy seventh power. That's how how awful the odds are of just these two themselves coming together uh, to be just like the Earth. Continuing along some of those thoughts as well, I tried to look up the original phase space volume. That seemed that has quantum mechanics. I found out as I was digging into that, and I said, you know, quantum mechanics is way past my realm, so I left that one behind. But this is what it's called, whatever the original phase space volume is in regards to the Earth. That is one, to have it just like it is on the Earth now, is one with 10 to the 8, so 10 with 8 zeros behind it, multiplied 123 times. That's not even a number. That's, that, you can't even write that into anything. Uh, so take your one, put eight zeros behind it, and then take that number, and don't multiply it by 123. Multiply that number by itself 123 times. 
That's the odds of our original phase space volume, which they say is very important, apparently. <laughs> I'm glad, glad to know that it's a very important concept that has life in the universe. That's the odds of that hitting one in one shot of getting that right. The odds, again, are, are ridiculous. There's a 1% change. If there's a 1% change in the strong nuclear force, uh, we would have between a 30 and 1,000-fold impact on the production of oxygen and hydrogen uh, in the stars. That's interesting as well. If there was just a 1% change in the nuclear force in the universe, in the Earth, look how much impact that would have on the production of oxygen and hydrogen. It would have between a 30 and 1,000-fold impact. It would kill life on this planet immediately. Electromagnetic force was slightly stronger or slightly weaker. Life in this universe would be impossible. If the increase of mass in neutron was about one part to 700, uh, and nuclear fission of the stars would stop, our sun's, sun wouldn't even be burning. We wouldn't have life again. I just want you to see, we haven't even gone through the more than 30 different factors. Each one of the factors has thousands and hundreds of thousands to millions of possibilities of what it could actually be. Gravity isn't like this as a constant everywhere. It could be more, it could be less. Same with, okay, this is the, the Earth from the Sun. Think about all the possibilities of where the Earth could be. And then start applying random chance to all this and say, now what is the random chance that we got the Earth exactly where it is in space, tilted just right, spinning just right, with just the right amount of electromagnetic force, just the right amount of oxygen, just the right amount of original space, space, space volume, whatever that is. All that stuff, just put all that together. And the odds become ridiculous. They absolutely become ridiculous to believe that it could happen by random chance. I want to focus just on this ridiculous number itself, this 1 over 10 to the 8th multiplied by itself 123 times. I needed a scientist to tell me this. I couldn't calculate this out either. But they say that the odds of flipping a coin heads 50 times in a row is 1 to 10 in the 14th power. So a 1 with 14 zeros behind it. That's the odds required to flip heads 50 times in a row. I have a coin with me. I've been practicing all week, too. <laughs> I'm hoping today's the day that I'm going to flip this coin 50 times, heads, directly in a row. I've gotten up to three in my practices. I want to know, I mean, do you all believe me today that today's the day I'm going to be able to pull off 50 heads in a row? Here, here we go, all right? I'll be honest with you, that's, that's tails the first time. Damn. <laughs> that's, that's no fun. Okay, there's heads one. Okay, we're, we're on a roll. We're going for 50. Tails. <laughs> Go home and practice and see if you, how close you get to 50. I haven't been able to get past three. That, that's all I can do. That's only one with 14 zeros behind it. We are talking about one to the eighth, or 10 to the eighth, one with eight zeros, multiplied by itself 123 times. And then you need to do gravity, and then you need to do uh, electromagnetic fields, and you need to do all of these things. And I just want you to see, if I were successful, I want you to consider, suppose I'd flipped this coin and I'd actually done it and got to 50. What would you suppose? You'd suppose I rigged it. You'd want to check the coin, right? You'd come up here and say, there's no way you can flip the coin 50 times heads in a row. You'd come up here and check the coin, figure something's up. I've got some sort of magnetic field up here that's going to always turn heads, or it's a double-headed coin, right? And that's the point I want you to consider is that the universe is rigged. 
That means somebody made it this way. There's no way for it to happen by random chance. You cannot by random chance actually get there without it being rigged. Somebody has to rig it. God did. God rigged the universe in the way that it is today. Even, uh, I, I'm always appreciative that, that our honest atheist who will take the pursuit and decide to just examine the science and think about, well, does it weigh in favor of evolution or does it waver in favor of God? Here's one confirmed atheist. He said, as recently as 25 years ago, this is his opinion about this, a reasonable person weighing purely scientific evidence on the issue would likely have come down the side of skepticism. And of course, scientists have done that for the longest time. But he argues that's no longer the case. He says, the concrete data points strongly in the direction of the God hypothesis. It is is the simplest and most obvious solution to the anthropic puzzle. He's right. I mean, it's just, it's a matter of the greater faith. You can either take great faith in believing that I would be able to flip this coin over 3,000 times and get heads in a row over 3,000 times or believe that God rigged the universe. That, that's the two choices I'm left with. And he's right. The simplest solution is to think that God put it here. Skeptical professor who worked uh, at the University of Adelaide, he said, through my scientific work, I have come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it merely as brute fact. I cannot believe that our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate, an accident of history, an incidental blip in this great cosmic drama. And again, I mean, that's what you're left with is to say it's an accident. It just randomly happened just by simple time, luck, and chance. It all just came together so perfectly, everything just right. And we've only talked about physics with gravity and electromagnetic fields and things like that. We haven't even begun to talk about, consider all the other things like biology and botany. Uh, these things also weigh in on our, on our faith as well. Plants produce the oxygen we need. We produce the carbon dioxide we need. You change those percentages just off enough. That's why everybody's going crazy about global warming. Because if you change and you, you know, your CFCs, remember that when I was in high school, I just stop spraying your hairspray CFCs, you're ruining the carbon dioxide, we're all going to not be able to breathe. It's all in just a perfect balance. That's what you have to take away from all that. It's all in a perfect balance. Did all that just happen just randomly, just by random acts of luck and chance? Those plants are producing just the right amount of oxygen. And we are producing just the right amount of carbon dioxide. You know, carbon dioxide would fail. Produce too much of that stuff is a bad business. Don't do that. And it all just happened by accident. It all just happened by, by random chance. The earth has a perfect balance of water upon it. That's why, again, global warming groups are freaking about melting melting the ice caps because we're all going to flood ourselves. It's just the right amount of balance. It's all set just perfectly. And that should weigh in on those people's minds of it's all set just right. That's interesting. It is important to keep the natural balance of things because it's all been set in a natural balance. It is fascinating that we are looking at a finely tuned uh, earth that exists. The complexity of our, of our human body is certainly fascinating. Uh, you know, it, when you start thinking about breathing, that's when it's hard to breathe. You ever notice that? You start actually thinking about your breath rate, that's when you kind of get all thrown off. 
it's an interesting thing that, and you imagine, what would have happened if we would have evolved that? How many people died before we finally evolved not having to think to breathe? How do you evolve that gene? You would all be dying constantly until we finally figured out, okay, don't, breathe, don't think about breathing this time. Until we finally evolved it just right. There are difficulties in the universe that if you say, well, it just happened over time that we got better and better at it, consider the consequence of what happened to those before us. And we, in all of our fossils, there's no evolutionary leftovers. We don't find any vestiges, though it's tried to be argued that there are some. There's not any. Any slight change in ourselves causes a dramatic problem. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's important to keep in mind. I, I used her on Wednesday night. I'll use her again tonight. My daughter Grace has two 15 chromosomes from the mom. Not, we're supposed to have one from mom and from dad. She has two, two, two from mom. That messed up everything. And we're going to talk about, well, we can just kind of start evolving. Maybe she's trying to evolve into something, you know, but it, it's just not working. You can't do that. You can't start changing. You can't start changing chromosomes, DNA, genetics without having catastrophic problems. And to sit back and think, oh, well, it's no big deal to start seeing little changes happen. Friends, it's a real big deal. Little things are a really big deal and change everything about us. And to think that we can just kind of change, have our, some of our genetic code change a little bit over time is crazy. That change is degrading the human population, not improving the human population by any means. I thought about this one as well. What about the, our blood clotting ability? You know, if we clot too much, we die. You know, we hear about being in the hospital, your blood clots, big problem, you're going to die. But if you don't clot, you're going to bleed to death. How do we evolve that? How do you get that just right? How many of us died over the thousands of years until we got that evolved just right? How many were just bleeding to death? Well, that's not going to work. Okay, let's try a little bit more blood clots. No, no blood clots are dying. Uh, you, you think about that. We're talking about random chance. We just have good billions and billions of dead people. The point is I want you to see it's all finely tuned. It's all perfectly built together. The universe is perfectly built together. The odds of it coming about randomly, just as perfect as it is, is infinitesimally impossible. The odds of our body functioning the way that it does, evolving to this point where we breathe, where we have body parts that help us, even though they, we don't even know exactly what they do, to come to that point is infinitesimally impossible. And to think about the, the whole biology and botany of the structure of the earth and how it's all built together and our dependence upon plants and trees and their dependence upon us and how that all works together. What are the odds of that all coming together randomly? And then once you've calculated all those odds, please multiply them all together because you have to get our life plus the earth plus its universe plus all that's on the earth and factor all that together. And the odds are ridiculous. And you don't even believe I can flip a coin 50 times head straight. And yet we're supposed to believe something far more difficult with random chance brought about all these things. I mean, we're going to talk about morality. How do you evolve morality? Where does the innate sense of right and wrong come from? 
All of us are built with a general sense of what's right and what's wrong. This, this general concept of, you know, killing's not right, hurting people's not right. We have these general concepts of what, what is good and bad, and without God, morality is nonsensical. Without God, why be moral? What is the point of, of, of being moral in these things if there is no God? Is that some sort of evolutionary leftover? You know, we're going to find, find that with us, that we just kind of work that out. You know, we don't see right and wrong in animals. They just do what's best for them. That's why you could look at them and come up with survival of the fittest. That there is no right and wrong. There is no greater morality. If there is no God, then why not kill the weaker and the inferior? That was Hitler's idea. Just kill the weaker and the inferior. They're, they're useless. Well, why not? If we live by survival of the fittest, then that's exactly what we ought to be doing, is purifying our genetic code, getting rid of the, the, the useless, and uh, going on with life. But we recognize that to be wrong. We understand that, yeah, there might be survival of the fittest in the animal world, but that's not acceptable amongst humans. Uh, there's something greater. Life is important, and it doesn't matter uh, what problems might exist with the person, no matter how old or how young, or no matter what may happen to that person. Uh, life is life, and, and morality trumps all of that. Where does that come from? Uh, did we just evolve that? Uh, and morality makes no sense without God. I want us to think about just this morning, then, that faith does not contradict science, but faith is built upon scientific evidence. Scientists want you to think that believing in God is a contradiction of science. Uh, I submit to you that evolution is a contradiction of science. Uh, I have to believe in something so astronomical, so infinitesimal, that I honestly don't have enough faith for it. I know I'm not going to flip this coin 50 times heads in a row. I just know it. Yes, it's theoretically possible, but we know practically it's impossible. It's the same thing. Yes, theoretically, one in ten with 77 zeros behind it is theoretically possible, but we know it's practically impossible. It won't happen. It can't happen. It doesn't come about. I said we didn't need to use the scriptures, but the New Testament tells us this is exactly the pursuit we were supposed to do. When Paul wrote, he said, from the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly observed in what he made. And that's how we know that there's a God. He simply said, look around. You don't need the scriptures to know that there's a God. Just look around and you see his power and his divine nature, his intelligence by what was made. Just simply look around and you'll see it. So what's your explanation? I told you at the beginning, there's only two choices. Either your faith is in impossible odds that randomly, by chance, without purpose, all came together just at the right time, all perfectly with no problems at all, and here we are today. Or your faith is in God who put us here. You must have faith in something. You cannot deny faith. Faith has to be in one or the other. Either you believe in these odds or you believe in God. And I wish I could spend time with a scientist and say, you recognize what your faith is in. Because it seems to be such a noble thing in this universe to be faithless, to have no faith. I don't have faith in anything. That's silly. 
We have faith in all sorts of things that we don't recognize. We have faith in all sorts of things. Not blind faith. Reasonable faith. By looking around at the things that we've seen. Can I use it with you one more time? You've never met the maker of your watch. How do you know somebody made it? Why don't you think that the junkyard yesterday exploded and made your watch? Because that kind of thing is not possible. That doesn't happen. Things blowing up doesn't make anything usable. It just makes more destruction. Somebody made the watch. Even though I don't see the watchmaker, even though I've never met him, I know he exists because my watch works, it has design, it has power, it's functional. The universe has design, it has purpose, it's functional. It all works together perfectly. I don't need to see God to know he exists. Next week, we will then look into the question of why we should believe the Bible is the word of God. If I'm at step one of, okay, there is God, the next question needs to be, well, how do I find out what he wants me to do? How do I know what he wants me to do? If he exists, then what's next? If there's something greater than me, if there is a greater power who has put all these things into place, then how will I know what he wants me to do? And how can I know that the Bible really is the word of God? You say that it is, but how can you prove that? How can you really know that it's trustworthy? That's what we will do next week. So I hope you will think about your life and think about everything that exists and don't take it all for granted. Look around and realize how complex it is. And the complex man-made things that we understand are man-made, like our car, which is all put together just right and just nicely, airplanes. We know how to create her. Very easy to take the next step and go, then everything around us also had a creator, for it's more complex and more durable than anything man has ever made.